Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, the co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, I love the state of Maine. You know, I was here last summer. Oh, it's a great state. I was in Camden and uh, really enjoyed it's such a beautiful place. And uh, uh, my wife fell in love with it, her first trip up to Maine. Uh, last summer, but uh, we're going to take a little visit up there to talk to one of my favorite people on the American shoreline, uh, Peter Neal, the founder and director of the World Ocean Observatory. Well, I've said it before, and I, I'll say it again. Peter Neal is a coastal and ocean prophet. Uh, he yeah. has the gift of language. He has the gift of deep thought and contemplation about how important our oceans are to the planet and how we as a society can really come together around some of the ideas of the important of the the importance of the ocean and society. So it's always a treat, Peter, yeah, to yeah. talk to Peter Neal. It is. Uh, you know, if and, and as you're listening to the show, if you're not driving or, uh, or running uh, and you're on a laptop, uh, worldoceanobservatory.org is the website. And uh, as we go through this conversation with Peter Neal, Uh, the extraordinary work that he does and his organization does on ocean information and education is phenomenal and uh inspiring actually inspiring it's incredible i just it blows me away every time i look at okay guys okay (laughs) hey peter neil welcome to the show (laughs) i'm so pleased to be here but you know this profit thing uh this profit thing is 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 going <laughs> to come back and bite us all. I'll, I'll tell you that. But one of the things about being a prophet uh, on um, using the internet as your communications platform is that you have an incalculable number of disciples. Mm. You can speak, you can preach to anyone, anywhere at any time. Uh, and so it's this amazing communications tool that is so far beyond the kind of TikTok, what you wear in kind of, of thing that goes on, the sort of social interaction that in so many ways is so mundane and so sort of psychologically useless. But the fact is that what we're doing here today is creating a conversation that could be heard by anybody anywhere uh, with the only caveat being language, and even that can be dealt with. So if you don't speak English, fine, but, 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 but it all can be translated in such a way. And, in, and when you visualize these things, as, as also can be done using the, 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 the computer and the Internet, even language uh, is, doesn't become so essential uh, because you have this ability to visualize concepts, illustrate it, and illustrate it uh, using... Uh, resources that speak directly to the people who are listening wherever they may be so it's a it's it's an astonishingly amazing opportunity and i've felt it by virtue of 16 years ago uh by total accident actually a kind of wussy escape from a rainstorm in, in in harvard square and i went into a a used bookstore and found a volume called The Ocean, Our Future, uh, which was a, a report of the Independent Commission um, of the uh, for the Future of the Oceans. It was called together by Mario Suarez, who was the former president of Portugal, kind of a great man. It was independent. It was not government. It was not UN. Uh, he had experts from everywhere. And that report, uh, published in 1998, which was the International Year of the Ocean, 
I still think is the best plan, the best understanding of how the ocean is connected hmm. and how it can be addressed through multiple uh, multiple ways. The penultimate way being um, what they recommended was a, uh, a World Ocean Observatory, a web-based place of exchange that would relate the ocean beyond species and habitat to um, everything, basic climate, fresh water, food, energy, trade, transportation, science, technology, policy, law, uh, community development, governance, cultural traditions. There is nothing, there is nothing on this earth that is not connected directly and then indirectly to a healthy, sustainable ocean. Well said. And uh, this is why we are having Peter Neal on the show today, Peter. Yeah. Uh, it's because this is a visionary. This is the this is the type of coastal advocate and um, communicator that sees the big picture. And uh, we're going to have a great conversation today. And we're we're also going to be talking about the. World Ocean Explorer, a new virtual aquarium that is out, which I am really excited to dive into, Peter. But before we get into it, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. Well, Peter Neal, always a pleasure to have you on the American Shoreline Podcast, talking to our listeners around the world. Uh, what a pleasure. Uh, we're so thrilled to learn about this latest project that you have underway. Would you introduce our audience to the World Ocean Explorer, the virtual aquarium project that you have undertaken with the Schmidt Ocean Institute? To give you background, if you talk to anyone in our world over 35, 40 who is interested in the ocean, and you ask them what inspired them, what was the thing that first connected them and, and galvanized their interest, and they will invariably respond, Jacques Cousteau and the, and the undersea world. Yeah. And when you look at that, I mean, Cousteau wasn't a scientist. He was more an engineer. He was a communicator through his kind of innate French charm. Um, he was going places that the, that the audience had never seen before, and it was enabled by a new technology, television, which allowed for the audience to, to essentially uh, be worldwide. So all of those scientists and policymakers that gather in all these, these meetings around the world about ocean, if you ask them, they'll all say the captain. They'll all point their finger and they'll thank Jacques Cousteau. Well, what's happened since? 
And in the sense of a kind of transformational moment, I will, I respect any and all of the people in our world, and we know them well, who are out there messaging constantly over and over and over again with a kind of determination, uh, with skill, uh, and with some success by virtue of relentless repetition of the message. But in fact, in truth, have we really changed the, the, the worldview? Uh, yes, we have marine protected areas. Yes, we have some laws. Some countries have national ocean policies. Some nations have made uh, commitments to climate change, which are also inflect in, on the ocean. But the, 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 the true measure of success is some kind of forward moving uh, indicators. And while there are some, there are also many others that counter those and actually suggest that in many cases, we are either right regressing or we're about to repeat the mistakes of the past as, as if they were progress. And we can talk about that a little bit later. But my point is, what is the transformational moment and, and, a, and a method by which we can reach the new generation of young people around the world and that is going to engage them with the ocean the way Captain Cousteau engaged us. And here we are with the internet and, and, and sort of global yeah. interconnectivity. We have a, another moment where technology has given us an opportunity. So in that context, the World Ocean Observatory, which communicates through multiple platforms, but what would be a better way than just radio or television or, or uh, you know, meetings or all the rest of it. And somewhere along the line uh, came to mind uh, the idea of, of a virtual aquarium. Um, aquariums are incredibly po popular. Uh, they are extraordinarily expensive to build. They are very uh, expensive to operate. Uh, carbon footprint is uh, <coughs> questionable. Um, uh, they're expensive to enter uh, in the sense that those are all barriers to entry, which essentially in the name of knowledge, um, keep many people from access to that knowledge. So there's the paradox. Hmm. So what I thought was, could you build on a gaming platform, a virtual aquarium that looks just like the ones that you would see in your local, local town or area, uh, or visit abroad, uh, and which has all of that information available, uh, and in depth, um, in, in, in expressed in many ways, uh, that would allow for you to have access to the information, the data applied, the information ac accumulated, the speculations and projections uh, that, 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 that pertain on any device, accessible on any device, anytime, anywhere, at no cost, no barriers to entry. And that's the key to this. So we have created a structure, an immersion architect architecture, that you go into a lobby, it happens to be floating in the ocean, uh, and you go into the galleries as if you were moving into the halls of an aquarium. And the first one happens to be on the deep sea, and it was sponsored by the Schmidt Ocean Institute. And it's built around the uh, expeditions 
that they have uh, mounted mostly in the Pacific and in the Australian area, where they have gone to the bottom of the seafloor. They have found and identified and scientifically described uh, animals that have never been known before. They've gathered all kinds of data. They've enabled other scientists to work on a platform that they can afford. Uh, and they are making an enormously powerful contribution um, to the scientific uh, uh, knowledge and aware public awareness uh, of the ocean world. So we have built the deep sea module, uh, and it has in it uh, tanks, quote unquote, in which you can see swimming these the animals that have been videoed at thousands of feet down. You can explore things on the bottom, a hydrothermal vent, a whale fall. Um, you can you can look at species that are newly discovered in, in as 3D models. And as you go around them, they, they, they rotate and the information uh, rotates around the base so that instead of getting less one level label of identification, you get multiple aspects or elements of the information that's, that is associated with, with that animal. And as you walk through, there are people, there's a mother and a father, and they're pointing to the tanks, there are school groups, there's a docent's guide. And underneath all of it, there is a, uh, an academic or pedagogical infrastructure based on the principles of ocean literacy. Hmm. So that the idea is you can walk in, you can freely walk about the, the, the aquarium, uh, wherever you may be, at the same time, you can have access to a curriculum structure um, for uh, teachers and students and curious individuals and homeschooling parents um, that has a, a, an organization built on, on a philosophy or, of, or a presentation of the ocean as an integrated global social system beyond just a natural or science or, or a natural system. Um, that connects us all. So I argue that if this succeeds, and we've just launched it to a very interesting kind of, of, of an enthusiasm, um, uh, if we can do what I dream this thing can, can be, we will allow for a very powerful contribution worldwide to a growing community of what I call citizens of the ocean who will sustain the ocean. They will provide the political will. They may become professionals, uh, but they will understand more deeply um, the significance of the ocean uh, on their psyche uh, and on the, um, the prospect of human survival. Mm. Well, it's it really is. Uh, it, I, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to clap for that. Amen. It's a great idea. It's a great idea. And uh, to me, the most important factor here is the accessibility. The fact that uh, anyone right now, ladies and gentlemen, that means all of you out there, and everyone should do this, I, I, I have to say. I think everyone out there should do this, is go... Google up the World Ocean Explorer. WorldOceanExplorer.org. WorldOceanExplorer.org. Couldn't get more simple than that. Mm -hmm. There's a bit of a download to enter into this thing because what, what's happening here is you're running this virtual reality experience on your computer. Uh, Peter Neal just did an, an amazing job of talking in poetry. 
But what we're doing here is you're running a pr computer program. And uh, it is an immersive virtual reality type of environment like a game. You use your keyboard and your mouse to navigate around and to look around this virtual space. And it took me, I don't know, maybe 30 seconds to realize, oh, this is really cool. And the potential to introduce people who have never been to you know, a, a real, you know, say the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is truly an amazing aquarium. Yeah, I love that one. But, you know, it it's hard to get to. Yep. It's expensive to get in there. And anyone right now could do this. You can do this with your kids. You can do this with your friends. You can send this around the world. And uh, that that really opens it up for to, to a whole new magnitude of uh, impression that we really need right now. What do you think, Peter Neal? Well, that's the that's the I totally agree. That's the intent, and it and and you know you can look at aquarium, and you realize Monterey is a, a spectacular e example. It's in a historic waterfront building, an old cannery. It's state of the art display. Uh, it's extremely intelligent. The director Julie Packard, founder and director, is a, a genius and a, a, a one of the great figures in 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 the ocean ocean world. Her portrait is in the National Portrait Gallery right now. <laughs> well, as it should be, but you know, and Sylvia Earle and others, but Julia, Julia, in the sense of 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 understanding the power of an aquarium and the tactile, uh, emotional connections that can be built there. But if you follow somebody through that aquarium, uh, you you do find that. After a certain point, a family of four, and I've done this, I'm, I'm almost like a stalker inside <laughs> these, following a family around, weird, but you watch what happens, and at some point, the parents are not able to really have the patience to continue on with the labels. The, the, the kids are, the labels are too high, so the kids can't read them easily. Uh, they begin to wander away. Mm -hmm. The great power of those, those aquariums uh, are the are the are the big tanks, um, the kelp forests, the things like that, where you are you're brought face to face with the beauty and movement and color uh, of 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 the ocean ocean world. So emotionally, they are extraordinarily effective institutions. They have education departments um, and they have guided tours, and all that's good. But it's uh, almost as if it's a one-time, um, hopefully ins inspirational experience that some young woman or man will kid will will decide. Oh, I love this! I want to know. I want to know everything there is to know about otters, or seals, and they become fascinated with them instead of dinosaurs, uh, and that leads them to marine science, environmental science, uh, and the kinds of questions and answers that that need to be need, need to be taken. Um, but how can you universalize that? How can you take away the cost of the ticket, the drive to get there? Um, I gave a presentation very early on when I just had the conceptual idea in my mind at the World Aquarium uh, Congress. It was in Vancouver, hmm. BC. And I had a full session, uh, the, the big screen, the eight or 900 in, uh, aquarium managers in the room. And I... I gave them the pitch and I foolishly or 
egotistically thought that this was such a wonderful idea, I would be paraded on their shoulders <laughs> around the room toward the coffee. And in fact, that did not happen. I'm yeah. having my, my, my cup. And uh, there's a strange feeling in the room. And I see a friend and I say, you know, what's going on here? And he said, Peter, don't you understand? You just put us out of business. Yeah, right. And I said to him, no, that's exactly the wrong thing to think. I am not. What I am doing is essentially seeding the ground, wanting, making children, young people want to know more. And where are they going to find more in a different way, a better way, theoretically a more intelligent way uh, in their neighborhood than the local aquarium? My argument is that this is a marketing tool from aquariums for aquariums all over the world. And, um, and it will bring to those, those places um, uh, uh, participants who are better prepared who actually have questions that they know they've asked and answered, and now they want to know more. Right. So the education departments and the curators and the displays have to be uh, even more intelligent and responsive. And thereby we've created a kind of network, an intellectual experiential network of physical institutions, not virtual ones, um, that will succeed. So yeah. I, I see myself as a marketing tool for the international aquarium industry. A little um, aperitif. Yeah. Yeah. But, but knowledgeable. Mm -hmm. You want two things to happen. You want a participant to come out of the experience knowing something, being eager to ask questions to know more, and to have been, uh, have any kind of emotional psychological connection engendered that will drive that force that will use the heart to drive the mind to drive the hand well the, the that, that's the way we learn you know the proof will be in the pudding here as they say uh hopefully uh the aquarium folks will come to understand that this kind of access and this kind of uh universally available experience is an addition to an augmentation of the work that they are doing and not see it as a competitive uh, disadvantage for them. Uh, have you started to, now that the, uh, the world ocean explorer is up and operating as a virtual aquarium, um, have you heard from any of your colleagues in the, uh, in the industry about what they think about it so far? Nope. We have to talk to these folks and see. I'd be very I'd, curious. I'd, I'd, I'd be, be very, very curious. curious to hear. Well, uh, my my approach has been from a marketing strategy is to go through the, uh, the marine educators. Uh, mm -hmm. That the and, and and aquarium education offices staff are, are among those. But the Sea Grant programs, uh, the environmental science programs, the marine science programs, there are national marine educators associations. Uh, in the United States, in Europe, in Asia, um, there are the, I, the way I think that it will succeed from the bottom up is if it is adopted by individual teachers uh, who will start to use it in their classrooms, if it will find access uh, to individual computers uh, where homeschooling mothers say, today we're going to go to the aquarium. 
Yeah. And they they are, kids are allowed to run free in the aquarium, and they don't necessarily have to go through a formal curriculum. Right. Um, I I think that the old way of 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 of, of marketing um, that does that's changed too, and there's a kind of uh, conventional approach to that, which which uh, it, the limits have already been found, uh, cost being one of them. Um, and um, and uh, uh, the inability to repeat the message. Uh, one of the things that I have learned about the world in the World Ocean Observatory and our success on social media, it basically um, uh, it, the medium is the message, but you have to repeat the message again and again and again. Yep. And you come at it from many many different perspectives, and that's legitimate by virtue of the multi perspective. Uh, reality of of the ocean itself, uh, but you just have to use multiple platforms. So we use syndicated radio and podcast and website and and uh, um, a digital magazine and aggregated video channel and uh, curriculum design and publications and online exhibits and. Uh, you do. You, you you do all of those things, and it's extraordinary. It's wonderful. It's what I love about the work you do at the World Ocean Observatory. Well, before we we move away from the virtual yeah. aquarium, I I have I just I want to talk, and I actually have a question for both of you because I am I am the junior member of this <laughs> podcasting team. I'm curious. I mean, what what y'all's relationship or experience with virtual reality technology is these days? Because hmm. Uh, among my friend group, my peers, uh, there is a, a lot of gaming that happens. Uh, I'm a millennial, and millennials like to game. And right now, uh, in the gaming space, it's all... It's, I shouldn't say it's all about, but there is a great deal of energy and design uh, technology moving in the direction of the Oculus, where you wear these... Uh, head this headset type of thing, and you are in you, it is immersive. Right. And Peter, do you remember when we did that thing with Erica Woolsey? I did at a couple, yep, International right. Ocean Film Festival in San Francisco. That's right. And yeah. I actually, on the podcast, ladies and gentlemen, took a virtual scuba dive, right, with Erica and Peter. Uh, and they got to watch me, you know, like a regular, like a weirdo, but I was wearing the, <laughs> the headset and right. I was, I was immersed. They got to just watch me in reality. But there really is something powerful about this new technology that is coming online. And what I think is so exciting about this virtual aquarium, Peter Neal, that you and your team have developed is that it, to my knowledge, is one of the first uh, forays into not, not, not a dive experience or a deep water experience. You know, I've, I've, one of the things I have also done is a a whale encounter in the deep sea that an, that Oculus has on their software, but uh, this is this is an educational space. It's a it's a virtual educational space, and uh, I have to say it it sets the table so well for exploring because you can go wherever you want in the virtual space and go to whichever kiosk or information center or exhibit you wish to. And the fact that there's actual like spatial, it, it's, it's a space. There's, you can move your avatar around this space. It gives it a different mental framing to me. 
I would be curious to know what y'all think about this. I mean, this is for me. It's it's more captivating than uh, maybe picking up a book or a document uh, on a piece on a subject matter. Being able to kind of physically move around. What do you think, Peter Neal? Well, I'm of an age where I remember 3D movies, and you know, you had these little glasses that you'd put on little paper glasses, very primitive way to sort of make the image double or whatever it was that gave you a sensation of depth. Where Has anybody seen a 3D movie uh, lately? Uh, have any of you, either of you, ever actually yes. seen one? Yes, yes, uh, with the glasses, of course, yes. Yeah, but the point I'm saying is that is that technology has moved us along very much uh, more quickly. We... Uh, Virtual uh, goggles, the Oculus, yeah, um, is is a privilege. Uh, it's not a cheap item. No, uh, not yet. So have one for every kid in a public high school in uh, in uh, Jakarta is not necessarily going to be an easy thing to do. Right. Well, my argument is, what's the next best thing? And in fact, these the the the, the software platform that we're using does allow you to move around in a three dimensional space. It does. And it's so once good. you have that uh, that context, that sort of sense of physical context, then that is done. And what is now important is the engagement with the information. You know, it's mm-hmm. that a teacher a teacher doesn't really end up teaching with a gimmick. A teacher ends up essentially using the gimmick to make uh, make connections. It's like a tool. Yeah. You know, a, a, a tool changes over time, but in fact, a tool is only as good as the person who wields the tool. Hmm. What I'm trying to do is allow for universal access so that everybody can pick up the tool. Uh, and it's just lying there for them for free. Yes, they have to have a, an internet connection and a computer or, or an iPad. But, you know, children these yeah. days have them. Well, and they uh, got they them at the, the library. We, there's there's yeah, definitely access here. Let me ask and, you. And they know how to use them. They know how to use them better than we do. They sure so do. So the fact is, they they fly around. We've done some beta testing with you know twelve uh, year olds and and younger, <laughs> and we get all the right responses uh, <laughs> in terms best. of enthusiasm and questions and what about this and what and in some cases where kids have actually had an interest enough to be clearly identifiable for the beta test, they'll say to us, well, you left this out. Why didn't you include this? Uh And I'm saying to myself, right, I'm going to sign you on to our advisory group um, for the the expansion of of the modules because they're never going to be ended. We're already talking with the Schmidt Ocean Institute about how to expand what we've already done. And and so we can, there's an infinite number of, of, 3D models that can be built. There's enormous numbers of of of, of dives and and other ways of approaching the data that can be built. We've laid out all this stuff theoretically, and now we're at the point where we can begin to build the architecture out, and people can start walking inside the building. What a blast! You know, you mentioned the Schmidt Ocean Institute. We're fans of uh, of that organization, a tremendous science-based philanthropic organization. Uh, does tremendous work. Uh, new research vessel coming online, Tyler. I think uh, Dr. Carly uh, Weiner, who we had on the show, uh, mentioned, I believe this is a new 350-foot research vessel. that The Falcor 2. Yeah, the Falcor 2. 
Uh, talk to us a little bit about your uh, relationship with Schmidt and uh, why they took an interest in this particular project. Well, you know, I, I've been in the fundraising business, the sort of entrepreneurial business. I've never, I've never worked for anything but a not-for-profit. Um, and, you know, development, so-called development these days is, it's like, uh, it, you know, it's like wave after wave of concrete walls and you're there with your little uh, um, <laughs> yes. idea banging on the wall and it's impossible to get in. Uh, you can't even, in many cases now, uh, send a letter of inquiry uh, to a foundation. They find you. They have their ways of doing that. And if you get if you get lucky, uh, that's fantastic. Or if you know someone, that's better. Uh, but it's a it's a it's a it's a it, it's a profession now to try to understand how you can get through uh, to donors. And in this particular case, I, by accident, discovered that. The president of the Smith Ocean Institute, Tiko Ravani, was on LinkedIn. And I asked her to, if, if I invited her to join my LinkedIn network. And to my astonishment, she said, yes. So I had my one message back to her and mm -hmm. I said, this is what I have and this is what we're doing. Uh, and uh, would you be interested in talking about it further. Hmm. And these days, she has told me, uh, many of these messages are ignored. Most of them are ignored. But the fact is, it struck a chord. And the following day, listen, it was about 48 hours from my discovery, my introduction to her, her response, um, that we were talking face to face. See, see what I mean by profit. Yeah, you know there there are only <laughs> there are only so many uh, ocean communicators that could, uh, you know, so 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 compellingly. You call it blind, blind luck. <laughs> it could be blind luck too. But, no, 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 but, no, no. It's not blind luck. They got it, and that the culture from uh, from uh, Eric and Wendy Schmidt right on down through the organization is such that they were prepared and programmed to understand uh, already that this was the kind of thing that fit their philosophy. And they have been Fabulous. a joy to work with. Yeah, first uh, class. I, we have worked with them uh, every two or three weeks. We've met with, with Carly um, and uh, other members of the staff. They have been helpful. They've been imaginative. They've been, they've been sympathetic. Uh, we've explored many of the problems and solved them together. Um, and now uh, we we have a, a a relationship where we have a proof of concept that has exhilarated us all, and we're discussing ways on what what to do next. Fantastic. Uh, and, and at the same time, my interest is also that there are other modules, and so there are modules on on water, for example, the water world, the hydraulic world. Uh, the the fact is that. That the the water cycle is the one thing in science that every every student knows very early on, and we sort of forget how it works, but it's absolutely essential to understanding the climate problem uh, and the pollution of the ocean and and the freshwater issues that we face, and that is an entirely different kind of natural hmm. process that's going to have a module of its own. A module on the way. Uh, the same thing as the history of science. The ocean has been escaped for 
amazing uh, number of expeditions from very early on by sea, by naturalists, who eventually ended up parsing, parsing our world. And so map making and, 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 and naturalists, naturalism and all these kinds of things that have been evolved by the voyages of Captain Cook and Darwin and all the rest of them. Yeah. Uh, that's a whole nother module which looks at, it, uh, at, at, at scientific history, the history of science or, or cultural traditions wow. or the history of work. I mean, mar- maritime work is, is an enormous part of the world, world economy. And most people don't know. They don't know that what they see in their local Walmart came there by sea. Uh, and disruptions in the ocean ocean transportation system have huge impacts and are having now huge impacts on on the uh, on our our supply chain uh, because we yeah. are totally reliant not just on physical ships but also even more importantly on underwater cables All, every financial transaction every internet message that goes from one place to another around the world. Most about ninety percent of it goes on underwater uh, yeah. underwater cables. It's one of the great People things that exist. Yeah, one of the great things to Google up is is uh, sea cable mapping, and pull yeah. up uh, an exhibit of the cables that are being uh, constructed connecting the entire planet. It's it's extraordinary. People have no idea how no extensive idea. those cable systems are. Uh, but Peter, I want to ask you a question. You you'd started out by talking about the inspiration for many people who uh, you meet these days uh, in the ocean and coastal professional world, uh, being inspired by Jacques Cousteau. Um, I will admit that is absolutely the case for me. Uh, His shows and his books, many of which are still on my bookshelf because I've kept them my entire life, uh, were inspired by my interest in the sea and marine biology and what I did for uh, for my college degree was a Jacques Cousteau-inspired event. I think I was 12 years old when I decided to be a marine biologist, and I had never lived anywhere near the ocean Wow! At, to that point in my life. Wow. My father was in the Air Force. We never – was not a Navy guy. We were Air Force. So we never yeah. neared the sea. But um, the, the whole point here that I think uh, you believe, it sounds like, um, is that if people understand – better understand uh, the circumstances of the world around them, particularly in the sea, and can appreciate it, uh, they are going to be better coastal or marine citizens, if we can say that, and inspired to play a positive and effective role. Um, I like that uh, philosophy. I think Tyler and I uh, believe that as well. Right there uh, with with, you. With Coastal News Today and ASPN, what we do. However... I have to ask you in this day of uh, public discourse when it comes to complex uh, scientific questions, um, there seems to be an emerging uh, anti-scientific universe out there that uh, are you still optimistic? Do you see, uh, do you still believe that better information, inspired information can be transformative in society? Can we be better if we're smarter? Is that still possible? Oh, oh, I I don't think there's any question about it. And if it is impossible, then the 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 the, the challenge we face is, yeah, uh, much more dangerous than we think. One of the there are several issues here. One is that scientists have never been trained to be communicators, uh, and so they they're very good at going out and doing the hard work, the dangerous work, uh, collecting the data, 
presenting the data to an academic audience and peer-reviewed papers and academic journals. Yeah. Um, they, they, they're good at conferences when they're speaking to people of like mind. Um, and in some cases, they made inroads in, in, primarily because that uh, a particular scientist uh, will, 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 will understand that that kind of communication uh, is, 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 is effective. E.O. Wilson, let's just say, Love is him. one who, who was a science, but who then could write, who could speak, yeah. who could be on television, um, and, who, and who learned how to be, uh, who could communicate these very complicated ideas, uh, but again, usually to a, a, a much more educated and, uh, uh, an audience that was probably yeah. trained to, to believe. Yeah. Uh, but so the whole idea of making, uh, translating science, which is what I think the World Ocean Observatory does and what this, uh, the Explorer is doing, is that we are essentially translating science from the scientific jargon uh, or from the acronymic uh, incomprehensibility of, 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 of governance, of uh, what I call uh, acronymic. Uh, a language that only uh, people in the UN know how to speak fluently. Um, but all of those things, again, are barriers to the understanding. So science itself has to learn how to communicate better. And what you're doing, what I'm doing, and what many, many other people in our in the ocean world have been doing for a long, long time is trying to expand and improve the, those 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 communications those tools for communication so there's that i if the i could oh i'm sorry go ahead and finish your oh, second point ahead, there ahead, well i do ha i want to comment on the on the science piece because um I, I the ken burns documentary on benjamin franklin just came out peter yeah i watched it and we actually you know we uh we spoke with dayton duncan uh yeah back in the day when I he know was, he wrote that he, he was the writer but yeah. um uh, you know, I, I do think that one of the interesting things, and, and this ties into this virtual aquarium and the idea of the internet and the, the World Ocean Observatory and just access, is that the way that, you know, science has become a, an ivory tower game in many respects. Hmm. And, and, and I'm not poo-pooing it, ladies and gentlemen. It requires a great deal of formal education to earn a PhD and actually be that to hold that type of certificate really does mean something. Yeah. But I also understand that in the internet, your cellular telephone is a computer connected to the internet and the information that is the, the ability to access information is truly infinite now. And I'm just thinking about our, our boy, uh, Benjamin Franklin and how he became a quote unquote scientist, and it was, it was through natural curiosity. It was through it was by he bypassed. There was no well. Go ahead. Yeah, I think you're. I think that's generally true. He wasn't a PhD. He was he was a very accomplished man, a genius in many respects, and and you know a lot of people consider him one of the great scientists in early American history. But uh, yeah, and I, I think the barrier to access in science is is high. Uh, it's very tough. And I, I'm a huge fan of, of science uh, literature and science. Uh, you know, E.O. Wilson is one of my favorite uh, guys to read, uh, along with Stephen Gould and many, many others. But, uh, I, you know, I take an interest in it and I have some background. Um, what, is it, what does it take, Peter Neal, to, to make 
uh, science communication more accessible and more interesting to the public? I mean, what's what are the barriers, and how do you how do you prepare, how are how are you working to get around those? Well, first of all, let me just say that at the beginning, every every PhD was a curious child. Yeah. So the 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 fact that they've chosen this path or that path to 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 follow follow their curiosity and apply their intellect is magnificent. And I, I agree with you. It's it's not easy to do. There's a lot of pain that goes through it. And the cumulative knowledge that has been uh, derived therefrom is enormous. It's enormous. Um, and sometimes it's not fair to ask people to do what they're not trained to do or can't do or don't want to do. Right. But right. there are people, there's a profession, we have a whole profession of people who are communicators. And so my arg- I always argue that I'm I have always been a translator or an enabler yeah. of of cultural exchange or scientific information. Right, and that's a noble profession. I would assert uh, in and of itself, and that is happening more and more. And one of the things that obviously has made that possible is the universality of the internet. Um, there is, though, other tools that I think answer the original question. One is visualization. Uh, you know, words is understanding thing with words is is one one way, and many people know how to do that, and they do it well. Uh, understanding things through visual uh, visual images is another. Uh, ancient languages were based on visual images, for example, but they had intellectual content and communicated value. So my argument is that 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 we have underestimated the power of visualization, hmm. and Ken Burns is a very good example of taking complex histories using archival materials and arranging them in a pretty simple way right not a lot of bells and whistles uh, a lot of intellectual uh, uh, consideration but by using visuals uh, and simpler language they've been able to get the point across and cre- be able to make you know inroads into popular understanding of 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 complicated ideas and histories so visualization would be a, would would be uh, another part the other third the third thing about this whole idea of the the criticism about science is that and it's true in a lot of ways politically that that if you look at at theories as ideologies and you look at the uh, the consequences of theories as impacts. Um, you know, you always wonder why somebody would adhere to an ideological idea that necessarily impacts them negatively. Hmm. And so, my argument has always been: if you if you can show the relevance of a um, of a uh, a scientific principle. On the uh, on a social application, on how it actually affects us personally, um, uh, uh, that will will go a long way to undercut this sort of uh, uh, ideological political dismissal of science as some kind of authoritarian nice nonsense. Yeah, I'll give you another example in a way. If you if you look at the way. Um, one way of talking about salt, let's just take salt, an essential maritime uh, 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 image. So salt. Now, if we learn about salt in school, we learn about it as a chemical compound, uh, you know, sodium chloride, 
we get to look at the table, we follow this, we follow that, we do little experiments, and suddenly we see it from an abstraction that eventually comes down to, to uh, a reality that we use every day. And some people respond to that way of teaching and others don't. But what if you did it in exactly the opposite way? If you looked at salt and you saw the fact that we all use it every day, Mm, yeah. And therefore, it flavors our food. It does this. It does all of those things. It influences our culture. All of those things it does. And you work up through that process from that from that starting point until you finally get, oh, well, in the end, we understand it because it's composed of, of, of sodium and chloride and, and all the rest of it. So you you learn the social history of the thing first, which leads you to the to the scientific knowledge as opposed to trying to learn the scientific knowledge and almost forgetting about its impact or its consequence or its re relevance to the social situation. Got it. Got it. Well, that's why you're good at what you do. That's and, good, that's good uh, golden rule right yeah, there. Yeah, I, I think your frustration with the, and I think you're right to say that a lot of scientists are not effective in public communication because it's simply not the skill set that they've sought to develop and a lot of them don't like it, is what I found. A lot of the engineers that I've worked with over the years uh, prefer uh, to work in solitude, to work intellectually, to solve problems, to analyze issues, and to present their recommendations from a professional standpoint. They're not really trying to inspire people. What they're trying to do is tackle complex problems. Um, and it does take a different mindset. And uh, it's one of the things that I love about the World Ocean Observatory and, and all of the different ways uh, that you use to to communicate science and and, and inspire people is uh, it's a different it's a different ball game. And I'm glad to hear that you are uh, optimistic about the utility of this particular approach because the more I look around the world these days, Peter Neal, I could get a little discouraged about our capacity to understand the world around us and our willingness to receive <laughs> information about it. It can be a little discouraging. You don't you don't find that? Oh, of course. You know, I mean, but. I, I, as an elder, I, I have no choice but to be optimistic. Uh, but, mm. but I understand why people are discouraged and, and, and depressed. And, and the outcomes of that statistically amongst young people is very disturbing in its relationships to, you know, uh, their ideas of their future, addiction, suicide, all of these things that are not just that are part and parcel of a kind of universal malaise. Uh, but may, that may well be that the world is ever so. Hmm. And that the only way we're going to really survive is not to mitigate. These are these, are these words that get used all the time in, in, in the climate conversation. It's, you know, mitigate and adapt. And uh, yeah, mitigate is sort of you do, you, you slap a Band-Aid on it and try to do your best. Adapt is you're accept it as a given, and then just change your ways uh, uh, as best you can to protect. But my argument is that what you really have to do is invent, mm -hmm. and that we have to invent our way out of these situations. And that's what mm -hmm. the humankind has done for years. That's the history of civilization. It's the history of, of invention over time. And, 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 and that's what's happening, I think, in the best of ocean policy. It's when we get concretized and siloized and and essentially uh, reduced to conventions because they've they 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 work 
but they used to work. And in a new world and a changing world, they don't work very well anymore. And so the whole idea of a, for example, of a of an NGO with uh, you know 400 employees worldwide, uh, that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is a a flexible not for profit with two two um, uh, two employees who don't have never sat in the same room face to face ever, and who are producing um, uh, uh, educational materials uh, and um, and celebrating the success of others. Uh, is another. And one is a function of a new technology that enables um, us to invent other ways to communicate. And And that's the success of World Ocean Observatory is simply that. It's it's a great invention in in and of itself. And one of the things uh, that I really appreciate about you, Peter Neal, and uh, the Virtual Aquarium and I think everything that you have done, uh, to my knowledge, is that you lean into the complexity and you don't dumb things down. Um, maybe you simplify to the lowest common denominator when appropriate. But uh, one of the things I really love about the way that you talk about the interconnectedness of the ocean, uh, though you do it in, 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 in beautiful language and you, you have a way with words and a way of explaining things, but you don't dumb it down. And man, I, I so so often in this space, uh, we see cheap content that that is, I think, analytically driven. It's driven to get in, uh, likes and social media impressions. And I don't really think it does much good at all. And uh, Peter, Neil, uh, in your work, I think you have just done a tremendous amount of good because uh, you're you are really working to to tell a more complex tale that I think is more compelling because it stitches us all together. Well, that's, that, that's true. And it, it I, I mean, the, the stitching together is the, is the, is the part that, that you want, you know, part of this though, guys is, is risk. Um, and institutions start out as risks. The startups start out as risky business but then they concretize, then they get in financed and capitalized and they begin to adopt conventions and uh, they, they, they bureaucratize. Suddenly they have departments and hierarchies and they have all this stuff, which is the old way of organizing things. Uh, and one thing the pandemic has taught us is there are other ways to do it. Uh, they may, we were exploring them. Some of them were not so successful, but that doesn't mean they couldn't be. And so the whole idea of patterns of human behavior and interaction changing, enabled by the technology, is something to be welcomed and, and used as incentive to create new, invent new institutions, new, way, way, new ways, new pathways. Hmm. And that requires taking risks. And a lot of, uh, a lot of, 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 of uh, a lot of the world uh, is afraid of risk, and a lot of the world is afraid of change. And so those are the two great um, uh, inhibitors in, 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 in trying to, uh, to uh, enable uh, people to join together to progress. Uh, and, and, and you don't necessarily know where it's going to go, but 
you know, you have to go there. And in the case of climate or the deterioration of the land and the inhabitability of the land and the challenges to the survivability of the water, um, we better wake up because the, it's becoming more dangerous. The risks are getting larger and we are not essentially risk uh, performing good risk management by just accepting the status quo or regressing to what worked in the 1970s or the 1990s, or in some cases, even the 1880s, uh, you know, where we begin with the fossil fuel movement. Yeah. And suddenly, suddenly it, it, it can only be that way. And the danger is that, the, that these ideas uh, like uh, ESG standards and sustainability goals and, and all the rest of them, uh, they can be easily co-opted by the status quo. Right. Uh, and we see it all the time. Uh, and there, even, I mean, those, those uh, that's just the old behavior dressed up with new adjectives of blue and green, but basically it's the same, same, same thing again. Ooh. And, uh, you know, let's just take batteries and electric cars you know, they're all going to be, these batteries and storage systems are all going to be reliant on, on you know, rare metals, lithium, et cetera, co uh, nickel, cobalt. These are all things that have to be, what, mined. Yeah. Sort of in order to feed this progressive idea of the electric car as the solution to climate, we are going to go back and extract not only from the land, the way we did in the past with all the negative of of uh, evidence of that behavior in terms of you yeah. know chemical waste, polluted streams, air 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 quality problems, and all the rest of it. And by the way, we're going to extend that to the ocean. Yeah, that's and we're going to go down to the ocean floor and devastate that using those same old same old uh, and that old technology strengthened so it can survive in an ocean environment. Yeah. And what are you going to do if we go through there and destroy uh, the hydro hydrothermal vents, for example? We may have destroyed the cure to diseases that we don't even know about. So there's no there's no forethought in it, man. And so my argument is that that in order to to solve the problems, they have to have good data, they have to have forethought uh, and intellectual uh, invention, and they have to have risk takers. Uh, to 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 make it so, Man. no doubt about it. Vision, that is, that we need vision. Is, that's a call for a transformation, and uh, you know it's interesting, uh, Peter Neal, to to listen to you. You know, you're in your 80th uh, year now, eighth decade. Uh, and to have what could be considered a very radical perspective that we, we have got to make a transformative move as a human community to an entirely new way of existing if we're going to take tackle this problem um that is a very bold thing to to say and to uh to push for and to expect uh well if you look at the history if you look at our history you see you see that that change is 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 really not evolutionary change really radical changes is, is revolutionary it's not even it's not even revolutionary because by using the the prefix re you sort of it's 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 yeah. it's as if we were going to go around the corner back i say it's it's pro evolutionary <laughs> so that it's forward looking 
But it has to be extreme. If you look at the fall of the Aztecs or the Incas, great civilization that collapsed for one reason or another, um, these were these were massive, frequently, allegedly climactic conditions right. for which they were not prepared. And we are facing with the same thing, except we have an advantage. We actually know so much more about the problem. Mm. So therefore, we have so much more advantage toward developing the solution. One would hope. And, uh, yeah, well, I think it's true. That's where my optimism lies. Okay. The question is, do we have the political will yeah. uh, to do that? And the political will comes from the bottom. Hmm. The political will is, is, is basically causes the ratification of political ideas and change. Yeah. And that has to come in a democracy from the bottom. Yeah. And that's what we have, uh, you know, somewhat at stake these days, people might say. But my argument is that change in my own community is coming from the bottom up and government locally has to respond. They, they become persuaded. And that's a, that, that's a, a, a good thing. Um, and so the explorer and, and the observatory are just tools in order to give people as much information uh, as they can uh, as they can receive as individuals so that they can co collectivize as families or as townships or as states or as nation states or as regional associations to uh, or as global government. Yeah. Uh, that's the way it, sh it has to work. I think that is the way it, it has worked historically, right? So that it's hard to argue with that formula of the way forward. Uh, and we really appreciate it. Uh, the work that you do being a part of the tool, I guess the toolkit uh, for that kind of transformative thinking is really uh, an essential ingredient to the entire package uh, to coming to a different, uh, you know, new chapter in, in human understanding and a new chapter in how we live and exist on the planet. Um, always a pleasure, uh, Peter Neal, to speak with you and to... Uh, get your insight uh, and perspective uh, on the most important issues on the planet these days. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Peter Neal. He is the founder and director of the World Ocean Observatory and the co-creator, along with the Schmidt Ocean Institute of the World Ocean Explorer, the virtual aquarium online. It's absolutely fantastic. Everyone should check it out at worldoceanexplorer.org. Uh, Peter Neal, thank you very much for taking the time to check in with our audience and share your insights. It's well, uh, always my, a pleasure. My great, my great pleasure. And, and let me say to you and to the audience that's listening, um, this is another tool. The Coastal News Today, the news aggregation, the podcast, these are the kinds of things that we're talking about and been talking about. And the fact is that this conversation is one organization reinforcing another and adding an element of amplification. We've just amplified the signal by essentially sharing our networks and beginning to uh, radiate out further from there in a kind of global resonance for good. <laughs> well, Thanks, guys. It, it is a privilege, always a privilege. Thank you so much for joining us.
and a cougar.